Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is a doctor who specializes in spontaneous coronary artery dissection. This is a relatively uncommon condition, but one that is becoming increasingly recognized in the medical lexicon. I was interested to speak to somebody who does so much in the technical side of medicine and yet brings so much humanity into her work. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Esther Kim. You're very welcome to the show, Esther. I'm so pleased to be speaking with you today. As I said to you in our preamble, you are living the dream. You are doing things that are really quite heroic in the terms of helping patients with a very rare condition. Many of the medical students who'll be listening to the show will be in awe. So I want to start the journey there. What were you like as a medical student? Well, Moya, thank you so much for having me on your wonderful program. I am a general cardiologist with extra training in vascular medicine, which is a specialty in the States where we care about all of the vasculature outside of the heart as well. What was I like as a medical student? Well, I think that I was very driven. And like many medical students, I grew up wanting to become a doctor since I could just learn how to talk, I think. And I think what appealed to me was that you had to have head knowledge, but you also had to have compassion and heart knowledge as well. I come from a family where in two generations, we have over 30 physicians. And so maybe it's a part of my genetics as well. So as a first-generation American, I think I had something to prove. And so in medical school, I was highly driven and very interested in many different specialties. And medical school was hard. I'm going to admit it. (laughs) I went to Duke University Medical School, and it was hard. And I was no longer the smartest student in the class, which was humbling, but it was inspiring to be around people finally who were doing what I always wanted to do and to see particularly other women who were successful, but also just kind. And I loved seeing the patient interaction. So I knew starting out that um, I needed to do something with patient care, even if it meant doing patient care with something else. Yeah, that's a lovely preamble because you're describing a medical student who is interested in people, and yet you're doing something that's very technical in terms of your career. How did you make that transition? Why didn't you go into something like psychiatry or family medicine? What was the driver? I think that I loved being the detective. I love problem solving. And I'm one of those people where if I see something that is amiss or, or awry, I'm one of the first to try to jump and fix it. And that can sometimes be helpful. And other times it's, you know, it's not helpful. And I think as I've gotten older and hopefully wiser, I've tried to hold back in the problem solving and maybe just try to think about things a little bit. But I think that was the driver for why I chose to go into medicine in particular. And so even now, when I see a patient in the clinic and I listen to their complaints, I cannot wait to put my stethoscope on them and hear what is going on in their body and to draw labs and see what their kidney function is or what their BNP is and finding things and helping to figure out what is the problem. It still makes me very excited. 
So I think the problem solving aspect is what got me into more of a technical field, so to speak. The technical field can be quite challenging though, can't it? Because the positive predictive value of any test you do depends on the prevalence of the condition that you are trying to detect, as it were. And the prevalence of the condition that you are trying to detect is very low. So for you, it must be a real challenge to actually have to sift through so much information to try and make a diagnosis which may be very elusive. Yes, I think I'm very privileged in the sense that I practice in a tertiary medical center, an academic medical center, where I basically hung up my shingle and I get the patients after other people have done a lot of that sifting. And so even though coronary dissection is a, I don't want to say rare because I'm not sure it's that rare, is an uncommon disease. So if we think about the overall prevalence, if you look at all patients with acute coronary syndrome, about 1% of patients, the, the MI is attributed to coronary dissection. If we hone that down to women who are less than 50 years old, the prevalence now becomes 35%. And so there are some risk factors that can point us towards the diagnosis. And I think my colleagues around the country are now recognizing this entity even more. And so they are looking for someone who has seen several of these cases to be a consultant for them. And so I sort of hung my shingle here and I've been here four years now at Vanderbilt And um, I now have a clinic on Monday and Tuesdays where I see anywhere between two to four new coronary dissection patients. And so I am privileged in that way that I don't have to sift through all heart attacks to find that one case. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. Now, we love stories at the Health Design podcast. Do you have any interesting stories that illustrate some of the reasons that this brings you so much joy? Well, I think you're going to have her as a guest on later on, but I love Catherine Leon's story. And her story is typical and atypical in the sense that, you know, she was someone who had her coronary dissection after the delivery of her second child. And at that time, she has photos where you can see that she's clearly in distress and her diagnosis was missed and she ended up needing a bypass surgery. And this is weeks after having a baby. And so the story is tragic, but not uncommon among the patients who have coronary dissection. So in some ways, her story is typical because she was told she had GI problems. She was anxious, go home. Her treatment was delayed. People couldn't believe she had a heart attack, but very atypical in her response to what happened in the sense that she didn't go home and get depressed and just kind of leave it at that. She went searching for other people. She started an organization. She became an advocate for the disease and really has turned GAD into the forefront of now diseases and diagnoses that cardiologists are interested in. And so I think stories like hers, where patients have something tragic to happen to them and then are empowered to help others, I'm not sure that I'd be that kind of person. And so in that, in that kind of way, I get so inspired. I want to learn more and I want to help because um, what they're doing is something good and excellent. And I want to be a part of that. I can see that. And it resonates back to why you did medicine and why you went into this field. So it makes a lot of sense. 
The story that you're describing of patients who have an interesting journey to getting to the diagnosis is not just true of SCAD, but many, many other conditions. Is that the kind of stories that you hear every day, that somebody's gone around and round looking for an answer and they finally arrive at your doorstep and they say, great, I think we found home as it were. I will tell you that it's the norm. And what is remarkable is that patients on their own have made the diagnosis. So they are these young patients, young women primarily, who have gone and to the ER, had their coronary angiograms, told they had NMI, and they're put on high-dose statins and treated just like everyone else and said, you need to change your risk factors. And, you know, these are healthy, fit women with no other atherosclerotic risk factors. Then they go home and they start doing their research and they say, why did this happen to me? It doesn't make sense. And then those patients will actually self-refer to me and say, can you look at my angiogram? And this is um, this happens not uncommonly where patients are not even referred by other doctors. They self-refer because they know that there is not something right. That's the other tragic thing, isn't it, about so many conditions in healthcare that it's now becoming patients who are finding the answer, that we are so busy doing the day-to-day work in healthcare that often we don't rise above that parapet and think reflectively about what else could be going on. In many ways, science is progressing at such a pace that we doctors, of all people, are not able to keep up with that pace. What do you think will happen in another 10, 15 years? Do you think patients are going to walk in with the diagnosis and say, this is my diagnosis, can we do something about it? I feel like they're doing that already in a lot of ways, I think, with all the online tools and everything. What's incredible is that there is so much now patient-initiated research as well, and we can talk about that a little bit in regards to the iSCAD registry and SCAD Alliance. But yes, I think 10 years from now, patients will walk in with diagnosis in hand and ask for help with the the treatment. And I think as technology increases, where now you can buy handheld ultrasounds and echo machines, you have these wearable cardiology devices. You know, patients will say, my Apple Watch said I have atrial fibrillation. What are we going to do about it? That's already happening. So I can't see that getting, you know, less common as as time goes on. We are talking about how medicine is morphing and how doctors are going to have to adjust to a completely different world. When I entered medical school, I won't say when, but a long time ago, we were regarded as the experts, right? Patients made the appointment, they took a ticket and they waited in line. And we made the diagnosis. And depending on what that diagnosis was, that's how things unfolded. These days, I get the impression, particularly when I speak to the medical students that I'm teaching, that they are going to face a very different world, have to be much more partnership with patients because those patients are going to literally be helping them to do their jobs. I think that is so true. And I encounter that all the time in my practice where a patient will bring me the latest journal article that I have not yet read, read, yet read. And, you know, I can be embarrassed by it or I can try to pretend like I read it, but that doesn't, that's not useful to either of us. And so, you know, I think along this journey, I have learned that humility goes a long way. And as we were discussing before, just showing your humanity, I'm not perfect. I don't know everything. 
just being open to hearing what the patients have to say goes a long way. So whenever patients bring me literature or mention that they read something in the New York Times, I no longer say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I really, I kind of write it down and make sure I do my homework for next time and for the next patient so that I can get better too. So I do think as doctors, we have to be humble. We don't know everything and, te- and patients can teach us as well. I-, I couldn't agree more, but you're also associate professor at a medical school. And we've got to think about this very carefully. What kind of doctors are we going to produce in the years ahead? And how can we align people to this new way that the world is going to be and is, is already? How do we do that? I think that's such a good question. I think uh, starting at the medical school level, and I hope I do my little part when I have my medical students with me in clinic or on the wards, just showing that we need to listen to patients, not just in the history taking, but also be willing to learn from them. I think our job in some ways are to be the, the interpreters and the summarizers of the medical literature that is out there. So when patients bring something new to be able to understand it for them and translate it back to them in a way that makes sense and that jives with the rest of the literature that they may not know about. So there is still that doctor-patient relationship where I went to medical school. (laughs) This is my specialty. But there is also exchange of information the other way where the patient brings it to me. But I think when it comes to the plan, and this is something I'm still learning as sort of a mid-career doctor, is how do I not be paternalistic? How do I not be a dictator in healthcare? Because as the problem solver, I feel like I know how to answer that question. And this is the test we need. This is the medicine you need to be on. And I think in this journey with this particular group of patients that I see, I have learn to understand, oh, the test that I order costs you this much. The test that I order, you're concerned about the side effect of the contrast. The medicine I'm giving you made you gain 20 pounds. (laughs) So, and the advice I'm giving you made you stop nursing your child. You know, these things are important and things that I might not have understood when I first started. Yeah, look, I'm still struggling with this question. And I'm not sure that either you or I have any of the answers, but there are so many journals out there. There's so much literature. I think it's one paper is published every minute or something ridiculous. There are millions of papers published every year. How do we keep up with all of this? And how do we then somehow summarize that for the person who's sitting in front of us? I don't know about you, but I learn best by teaching. And so... When I get the opportunity to teach about coronary dissection, it forces me to read the most recent literature and to synthesize it. And so that's how I keep up with it, to be honest. And teaching can be presenting at a national conference or teaching the medical students on the rounds or even writing a review article. But I think that's why I've stayed in academics because I need that sort of accountability. I have to be able to do the thing that makes me stay current. So I, maybe that's one solution. Well, I wish it was a solution in my specialty, which is family medicine. I, I have the whole of medicine to kind of deal with in that way. But you're right. I think that teaching certainly is one way that we can do it. And certainly writing is one way. And we're, 
very keen at Journal of Health Design, particularly to encourage people to write even early in their career and to form the habit of reflection and to form the habit of thinking in that way. Because, okay, you're not going to cover everything. But if you cover thyroid disease this week and you look at the common you know, Hashimoto's disease and many other things that are related to that, you've got to start. But yes, continual medical education is no longer a nice thing to have. It is absolutely critical in the world in which we live. I think other sort of newer ways that people stay current, um, especially in cardiology, is social media. I don't know if you've heard of cardio Twitter, but uh, that's how I knew. That's how I know about what's current and what's controversial is I see my colleagues across the country sort of battling it out about the newest study. And as much as I hate being on social media, sometimes I have, I feel like it's related to work and I have to do it. So I think we're going to be learning from the younger generations. And the way I do CME sometimes is just those medical apps that, you know, when you're studying for your board review and you answer questions, but you are completely right. And I have to say, I have so much respect for family medicine and internal medicine doctors. I specialize because I was not smart enough, strong enough to, to do what you do. And it's so much easier being in a narrow, narrow focus specialty. So thank you for what you do. Oh, thank you for saying that. And, you know, on behalf of all of my colleagues and particularly my very good friend, Eric Last, who's a family doctor in uh, Long Island in the, in the U.S., I thank you for that. I think he in particular does an amazing job. Okay, so if we go back to where we were starting this conversation, tell us a bit about SCAD and why you feel that this is something we should be very careful about. Yes, so um, SCAD stands for Spontaneous Coronary Artery Dissection. And that means that you have a tear in the coronary artery that is not from an iatrogenic injury or from trauma. So literally, the artery tears for an unknown reason. And if you look at who is affected by this disorder, 90% of the patients are women, and the median age of diagnosis is the late 40s. And the vast majority of them do not have the traditional Framingham atherosclerotic risk factors. And so they are not patients who are used to being patients. They are otherwise healthy women who are living their lives, raising their children, going to work, being a part of their community, having babies, and they present with an acute myocardial infarction. Sometimes that requires bypass surgery, and even heart transplantation. So um, this is a, a very traumatic event happening to people who really have been taking very good care of themselves and other people. And it's difficult because it's unexpected. There's nothing they could have done to prevent it. And um, unfortunately, it's still rather unknown how to best treat this entity. So I became interested in this because of my training in vascular medicine. Um, I became a cardiologist and did additional training in vascular medicine at the Cleveland Clinic. And I was fortunate enough to have a mentor, um, uh, Heather Gornick, who is a phenomenal vascular medicine physician and cardiologist as well. And she has a particular interest in fibromuscular dysplasia. So because of her interest in fibromuscular dysplasia, I also <laughs> developed an interest in uncommon arterial disorders. 
And fibromuscular dysplasia and spontaneous coronary artery dissection turns out if you did a Venn diagram, they overlap by about 50%. So all of a sudden, I've gone from an FMD specialist to a SCAD specialist. And so that's sort of my journey of how I came here. And I think the reason I stay is now I am a 45-year-old woman with no cardiovascular risk factors. And some of the patients I see are now younger than me. And they are just like me. They have children in elementary school or high school, and they are going to work. And I just, now it's become sort of personal in a way that they could be my best friends and they could be me. It's like looking in a mirror. And so I think uh, in this part of my career, there's been a, a second sort of motivation. It's now I understand what they're going through. And I can't imagine going through what they are going through. And so, of course, the problem solver in me needs to get more involved and wants to really help. So you're, you're teaching us a red flag here. And the red flag is if you see a young woman who's had a myocardial infarction, think about SCAD. At least consider the possibility that this is not your typical arthromatous vascular disease. That is exactly right. So the majority of patients, over 90%, will present with either a non-STEMI or a STEMI. So troponin-positive acute coronary syndrome. They will present to the emergency department with classic chest pain symptoms, the majority of them. Um, of course, we know women present differently. So some of them may have scapular pain, neck pain, jaw pain, or they may just be nauseous or short of breath, but it myocardial infarction nonetheless. I think there is a little bit of a delay in diagnosis. And so the important aspect of this is that when patients present early, that first troponin test might not even be positive. So there are a lot of patients who say they were going to let me go home, but then my second troponin came back positive and I had to stay and get my coronary angiogram. So yes, in terms of presentation, it is myocardial infarction the vast majority of the time. And of course, the the treatment is different because these women should not end up on all the usual plethora of things that we use to treat myocardial infarctions. Yes, the, the treatment is different from atherosclerotic myocardial infarction because the, the, the sort of environment, the local milieu, so to speak, is different. When you have an atherosclerotic plaque rupture, there's a lot of inflammation and thrombosis Whereas with um, coronary dissection, there's an actual tear in intramural hematoma and it's bleeding on the inside of the artery. And so, you know, to be honest, we don't know if anticoagulation in the midst of a SCAD heart attack is beneficial. There is some data to say perhaps thrombolysis is actually harmful. We don't know if statins are beneficial or if they are harmful yet. Those studies have not been done. We do know that patients who are able to be treated medically, meaning that they are otherwise stable, can heal their coronary dissections. And so by six weeks, over 90% will have evidence of angiographic healing. And so if we can leave the lesions alone and let nature do its thing, they can heal on their own and at least look angiographically better. In some situations, stents do need to be inserted for those patients that have refractory angina, hemodynamic, or electrical instability. Of course, they need revascularization urgently or emergently. But Yes, the treatment is very different. You know, you would be loath to take a person with a 90% atherosclerotic mid-LED lesion with plaque rupture and leave it alone. But in SCAD, you may want to just watch very closely if they were stable and wait for them to heal. And what is the prognosis, Esther? I think that is probably the million-dollar question. And we really need some larger, longer studies to help us understand the prognosis. 
So what I tell my patients is there have been a few sort of natural history registry type studies that have been done around the world. And if you throw everyone into one pot, patients who have FMD, patients who don't have FMD, patients who may have connective tissue disorders such as Marfan's or vascular Ehlers-Danlos, if you put young people and old people and men and women all into a pot and you follow them over about five years, about 10 to 15% of them will have another coronary dissection event. And so, you know, doctors like to talk about events. So 10 to 15% will have another one, but patients like to hear about the good. So I say 85 to 90% don't have another one over the next five years. There's certainly two ways of looking at this. So what I say to my patients to give them a little hope is that, you know, statistically, you probably won't have another one in the next five years, but it can happen. And so you need to know and remember what your heart attack felt like so that you don't delay if another one were to happen. Beyond five years, we don't know. And what we really do need are some differentiators, maybe a risk score. Is it different if you have fibromuscular dysplasia? Is it different if you are a man? Is it different if you present at 70 versus at 30? We're not sure yet. Yeah, there are a lot of unknowns, but at least we're beginning to recognize this and it's becoming part of the lexicon. SCAD is part of the lexicon in terms of young person, particularly a young woman who's had an acute coronary event. You've got to think about this and reconsider how you're going to approach her management in the acute phase. In the long term, obviously, you've got to think about what may be possible to do to prevent uh, recurrence, albeit that it doesn't happen uh, more often than not. That's right. I think it is a million-dollar question, and that's we need more research desperately. And I want to reassure patients we are working on it. There are several efforts underway internationally to try to understand the natural history of this, but not just understand the natural history to understand it, but to understand it so that we can find ways that we can reduce the recurrence. Esther, that sounds fantastic. So where can people find out about SCAD? Where can people find out about you? Oh, goodness. They don't need to find out about me. Um, They can find out about SCAD. There are several patient organizations around the world, and there is really good research being done around the globe, even in Australia. And I think that patients should try to participate in research that is close to home. In the States, there are a couple places that are doing registries. The multi-center registry that SCAD Alliance is funding is called the iSCAD registry. And we currently have 16 hospitals around the country participating in the enrollment of patients. We started enrollment in March of 2019, and we have nearly 600 patients enrolled. So clearly there is significant interest on the part of doctors and patients uh, to enroll in this type of study. And, you know, your um, broadcast is really interested on in the relationship between doctors and patients. And I think the iSCAD registry is a beautiful example of how patients and doctors can work together to further a cause. So You know, I told you the story of Catherine Leon, who helped to found SCAD Alliance, but is also now funding this registry. And I think iSCAD is different because the patients told us what they wanted to know. So it's not the doctor saying, hey, mortality is the most important thing. When in fact, for patients, it could be, can I have another baby is the most important thing. Or can I take hormones when I undergo menopause is the most important thing. 
So what we did is we asked GAD patients via a, a social media platform, what are your important questions as we were developing these forms? And then we asked doctors, what are your important questions? And we incorporated all of those things into the patient surveys and the CRFs, the case report forms, so that we can marry all of those things together and in the end be able to answer questions that are important to both parties and to all participants. Esther, you're a very special doctor. Your humanity is clearly visible to anyone who knows you. You've got a great sense of humor. You care about your patients, which drives your interests and has driven your career. You are making a huge difference. Thank you. I'm blushing over the radio waves. Thank you very much. I don't know if I live up to all of that, but thank you so much. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.